You're listening to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is a live session from day 5 of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023, and it's called Accidental Gods, Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Anna Della Sabin in conversation with Katie Hessel. Thank you so much and thank you all so much for coming. It's so wonderful to see you here and Anadella for being in conversation on your fantastic book Accidental Gods Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. This book is just rich. It's full of life stories. It talks about empire, race, religion, myth. In a way because it focuses on the gods it actually almost leaves so much room for actually how we've been shaped by society. And actually the absence sort of speaks louder than that. It taught me so much and just so many stories that I can't wait to go into depth with you today. So this book as you write uh, in the introduction does not seek to determine whether people believed in unwitting gods. But instead let us ask why these stories exist, why they have been constructed and retold and how they have shaped our world. So I'd love to start off to ask you about the definition of accidental gods and this term that you use apotheosis. Could you expand on that and tell us what is at the crux of this book? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Katie. I'm thrilled you enjoyed the book and just wanted to thank the directors of the festival. Um I've just been having the most fantastic time over the past few days and I can't believe that we're at the last day. Um and I also wanted to thank the Embassy of Ireland for sponsoring this event. Um So yeah, so what is who is the accidental god? Um An accidental god is someone who has had divinity thrust upon him. He's not like the zealous founder of a cult who becomes deified, and he's not quite a saint, you know, someone who's within a religious community who then becomes singled out for kind of remarkable piety or miracles. This is someone who through forces of accident chance and coincidence finds themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time and is taken or mistaken for a god um and once you start looking for this figure you find them everywhere um so i guess i should i should talk a little bit more about what i mean about a god like what does it mean to be turned unwittingly divine And in my book divinity is a spectrum. It's not a binary of god and man, especially in a kind of judeo-christian sense where there's god the almighty at a distance in heaven far from us and humans are on earth and there's this chasm that can never be crossed. In this book divinity encompasses an entire range of what the late anthropologist Marshall Solins has called meta persons so this is you know demigods ancestor deities avatars um islamic jinn spirits who can possess people's bodies when they're in the state of the trance um so it's it's a huge array of ways of thinking about the sacred 
And when was it that you became interested in this subject? Well, you know, I, I so I worked on this book for 10 years, um, but I, I had studied the ancient world as a student. Um, I studied classics, and I was really steeped in kind of Greco-Roman ideas of the apotheosis of emperors. Um, apotheosis meaning literally the making or becoming of a god. Um, so I had, you know, studied all of these histories of Roman emperors turned into gods. Um, and then I, I studied Sanskrit um, in graduate school, and I, I was really interested, especially in Indian philosophies of illusion um, and ideas of the avatar. And then at Harvard Divinity School, I studied early Christian notions of Christ deification. Um, so this was this was all like inside my head, but then. When I graduated, I took a job at this Middle Eastern culture magazine, and the revolutions of the Arab Spring broke out in 2011, and we picked up our office and we moved to Tahrir Square in Cairo, right, kind of the epicenter of the protests. And so suddenly, here I was, this person who had been very like monastically steeped in the ancient world, suddenly colliding with like the modern present and I, I found myself at this moment of just pure political ecstasy when Mubarak had just stepped down and the future looked limitless. Um, so I was thinking a lot about you know how do political ideas catch fire? What drives people to risk their lives and grow out and protest, you know, for politics and it just seemed to me that like you couldn't understand it without ideas that were somehow religious in nature, you know? Like this was, you know, in many ways people saw it as a secular moment, but there was something driving it that just seemed beyond beyond the secular. Um, and I started thinking a lot about the power of charismatic autocrats and at one point I just had this weird revelation like, well, what happens if a politician has too much charisma? He might find himself turned into a god like Haile Selassie among the Rastafari, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about later. And so I kind of became obsessed with this idea of how an emperor on one side of the earth in Ethiopia could become god on the other side in Jamaica without even knowing it or even being informed <laughs> that he'd been turned into a god. Um, so I became obsessed with this idea, and then it, then the idea it really just took off from there. But I think it's so interesting, you know, the way that we position political people in political power or people in religious power. I mean, there is so much that corresponds with religion and secularism as well. But also, I'm fascinated to know also how does looking at these accidental gods actually help us understand the world in which we live? So the, what does it say about our society if we are deifying these secular people? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as... As I was kind of on this quest for accidental gods, um, I found that like I just needed a word to kind of to capture what I was after, um, and the word I use in the book is mythopolitics, and that's not a word that's in the dictionary yet. Although I've noticed people are kind of starting to use it more and more, but it's a way to capture how politics is kind of deeply driven by mythological thinking. And by myth, I mean 
a kind of story that is also a theory of how the world came to be as we know it, what the future holds, what's the next right step to take. Myths are kind of calls to action. They summon us to do the work of transformation. And they transcend true and false. And so they're so powerful. And so all these stories in my book kind of constitute a modern mythology in a way. And I'm using them to really get at the relationship between politics and divinity, between empire and race and patriarchy. And so it, 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 for me, it's just been a kind of, you know, an eccentric but powerful lens into how the modern world came to be as it is. Totally. I think, when, you know, when I was reading it, whether we look at Haley Selassie or whether we look at Baden-Powell, actually how much these figures, you know, from 100 years ago actually still shape so much of our world today. But obviously you mentioned the patriarchy, and I'd love to also start off with sort of discussing women, because in a way there is this kind of echoing absence of women in the book as well. I mean, you write, and, and also what is a female god? Is it a goddess? And, and, and what does that term mean? I mean, you write, we call the female de deity a goddess as if something less than a god. And there are a few of them here, an absence taken on the heart of this book, which examines how a military general worshiped as a god became an icon of modern masculinity and a role model for how man should be. I mean, what role do women play? I mean. How do you see the word goddess in this context? Yeah, I, I knew you would notice the incredibly <laughs> conspicuous lack of, of women in my book. You know, it's kind of the story of gods without women. Um, but I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book entirely about men. About men. I, I really thought I was going to find more female characters, you know? I'd read Ian e. Forster's novel, A Passage to India, and I thought I was going to find more characters like Mrs. Moore, who's the kind of wizened, older mother who's worshipped as a god after her death because she alone properly recognizes the injustice of the Malabar caves. And I thought, I thought I'd find kind of more real-life figures like this, um, but I couldn't find her, you know? I found... A number of stories of deified colonial wives, British colonial wives, um, or the Empress Menen, Haile Selassie's wife, is deified in the religion of Rastafari. Um, but you know, in my book, I have an index in the back of inadvertent deities, um, and there are about 90 figures in my book, and only 10 of them are women. Um, and I think the reasons for this are twofold. Um, on the one hand, you have to look at you know, who's writing down these narratives. And for the most part, it's kind of white, Christian, imperialist colonizers and the scribes of empire who are, who are writing down these accounts of apotheosis. Um, and these, these are writers who are coming out of a tradition in which God is male. He's God, the Father, the Almighty, you know, and he's male, he, and he's also seen as white. Um, and so women aren't getting mistaken for gods because they simply don't look like God, you know, and, and the stories they write, 
the few stories they write down take on a kind of like tragicomic aspect, you know, of like, oh, how ridiculous it is for, for you know, a woman to be mistaken for God. So that's one part of it. But then I'm also looking at how these stories of apotheosis have actually seeped into our modern construction of masculinity itself. So one figure in particular um, is the Brigadier General John Nicholson. Um, and William Dalrymple has actually called him, quite rightly, the great imperial psychopath. Um, but he's, he's actually probably the most violent god in my book. And he's, you know, the great, either you call him the hero or the villain of the Indian uprising of 1857. Um, and he, the, the story goes that a religion coalesced around him of several hundred sepoys. Um, and then it grew to encompass all these different groups of people. And... You know, in a way, worshipping Nicholson, who was so violent that he kept a severed he head on his desk, um, although not for literary inspiration, just to strike terror into the hearts of everyone. Um, you know, worshipping him became a way to kind of appropriate his power. But on the other hand, the British historians and writers and, you know, BBC producers have kind of told and retold this story, um, and it, you know, one of the f one of the most kind of influential retellings of this of of Nicholson's godhood was in the Boy Scouts manual by Lord Baden Powell, where Nicholson kind of becomes an idol of or a role model for like young boys to aspire to kind of like, well, how, how should a man be in the world? Well, they should act like someone who would get mistaken for a god. And then Nicholson keeps reappearing in the stories of Kipling, and he appears in um, Samuel Smiles' text, Self-Help. Um, and so he really like becomes a kind of icon of modern masculinity, and that's the man mistaken for god. So this space of divinity kind of becomes ever more male as it were. Yeah, you use the term muscular Christianity in the book, which was the first time I'd actually heard this um, term. And actually, you know, when we also think about representations of God and Christ in art history as well, it is this kind of white, heroic man sort of imbued in this kind of long lineage of classical heroicism as well. Yes, exactly. You know, it, it seeks its aesthetic inspiration from literally like the bodies of the kind of demigods of ancient Greece. So figures like Antinous, who is deified by the emperor Hadrian, it kind of creates this, you know, the, uh, this visual of modern masculinity that, that can be mistaken for godhood. And it's, you know, it, it, it today continues to be a profoundly influential ideal. Yeah. But just to go back to the women as well, I mean, just the fact that actually what can we learn from the absence of women as gods? It's also a kind of reflection on us as a society. Do we deify women as gods? I think we have to kind of question ourselves with that as well. But I mean, you mention these extraordinary figures such as Annie Besson and Madame Blavatsky, yet someone like Annie Besson never actually becomes a goddess. I mean, can you tell us their stories and, and why you wanted to interweave them into this book? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Annie Besant is really forgotten in most of the world today, especially in in the UK. Um, she's an English woman of Irish descent as well. Um, but it's really in India that her memory has been best preserved um, and her very kind of you know, amb deeply ambivalent legacy. Um, she's uh, famous for being a union activist, socialist, women's rights campaigner. She was the first woman to make a public statement about contraception. Um, and then she, when she was asked to review a book by Madame Blavatsky, who's the kind of infamous mystic who founded Theosophy, which is a movement that sees all religions as being pathways to the same truth, um, which began in the mid-19th century. And so Annie Besant was asked to review this book uh, by Blavatsky, and she was completely converted by it, which I find to be a kind of, kind of funny idea since I review books myself all the time, and you don't know if, you, if it might you know, just convert you and change your life. But um, so Annie, Annie had begun her career really as a housewife married to a vicar in the Church of England. Um, and she soon realized that she was an atheist and she would have to leave the marriage. Um, and this led to a terrible custody battle in which she lost custody of her two children. Um, but when she became a theosophist, she moved to India uh, to the Theosophical compound um, in Adyar and Madras. And Theosophy was looking for the arrival of the Messiah or the Maitreya. And this is, of course, the figure who has come in the form of Jesus and the Buddha and Krishna and some say Muhammad. Um, and they're all waiting for this figure. And then they, they famously locate the next vessel for the Messiah in a boy, Jiddu Krishnamurti, um, and they see him bathing on the beach. And then you have this, uh, this kind of stunning paradox that Annie Besant, who had lost her own children, then essentially kidnaps Krishnamurti from his father, along with Krishnamurti's brother, and then she raises him as a baby god and keeps him kind of held captive in the, in the Theosophical Society. Um, and so my book, I talk a bit about, you know, like how do you groom somebody to become a god? You know, what's, what's the daily schedule like? And they're reading him like ghost stories at night to make sure that it, to eradicate any sense of fear because a god can't know any kind of sense of fear. But then a second custody battle ensues in which Krishnamurti's father tries to seek back his sons. And this really becomes a kind of proxy for questions of India's liberation. So the custody trial is, is in 1913. And to the side of Krishnamurti's father rallies a growing Hindu network of, of activists who are seeking India's total liberation from the British. And then on the other side, you have Annie Besant, who is, you know, who, who fights for India's home rule, but she still wants India to be a part of the Commonwealth. And she still sees 
sees the British Empire as playing a sort of mother role akin to her own. Um, so she, it's, it's deeply, you know, thorny story and then it, and then at some point Krishnamurti's father says that he had been he had thought of Annie Besant herself as divine so she she also is imbued in divinity with divinity in a way um, it's also so fascinating how you know people are groomed to become gods and then sometimes I guess in a sense with royalty they're born into it and in a way you know from birth these people who have been born for you know a day or so they're already seen as other and higher than us and they have this sort of higher power because they're blue-blooded or something I mean it's still the case very much today when we look at the royal family I mean you mentioned Queen Victoria um, you know as a woman she didn't she really didn't accept herself as a god, I mean, being, tell us a bit more about the acceptance of people accepting the fact that they are gods. Right, yeah, so Queen Victoria is one of the few women in the book where there actually is a kind of brief religion that coalesces around her, allegedly. Um, so in the late 19th century, reports began circulating of a movement in Orissa that was worshipping Queen Victoria as God. And the reasons why they were doing that was because her head was on the rupee. And, you know, coins have always had portraits of the gods on them from the very beginning, you know, like, even like our, our English word money comes from an epithet of the goddess Juno, moneta, um, kind of the protector of the value. So, you know, in many ways it made perfect sense to worship Queen Victoria as a god because there she was on, on the currency. Um, but, you know, the British press really seized upon this story because it seemed to sanctify their imperialist presence in India um, and so you know that this the stories were were reported but um, it's unclear whether Queen Victoria actually ever heard about it herself but what's really paradoxical is that Victoria didn't believe in political power for women herself even though she was like a god you know she actively like sabotaged women's rights campaigners. Um, she wrote that she thought they should be whipped. Um, so she was really, you know, a god in spite of herself um, in more ways than one. Mm. But then there was, on the other hand, in 1977, um, Prince Philip, who was famously married, to, who, who was married to the Queen, um, he actually knew about the religious sort of uh, uh, um, group who worshipped him. Yes, so to tell you a bit about that story, so in 1973, Prince Philip was vacationing on the royal yacht Britannia with the Queen um, off the coast of the island of Tana in Vanuatu. Um, and a few chiefs saw him standing on deck of the yacht in his white naval uniform looking resplendent and they just knew that he was the son of the volcano god Kaobabin um, and this was a deity who had been born in Tana resided in the volcano and then had left Tana to go out and work for the betterment of the islands in the world and it was said that he would one day return 
bringing with him prosperity and an end to all sickness and death itself. Um, and so beginning in the, in the mid-1970s, a religion began to form around Prince Philip. And soon he did learn about it. And he struck up this really interesting relationship with his worshipers, where, for instance, he they they sent him a ritual pig killing stick and that and then he like posed with it on the lawn of buckingham palace and sent it back and the palace was kind of constantly like seeding new rituals and new myths on the island so the religion that you know exists into the present day uh even in the wake of philip's transitioning to the higher plane, um, it's, it's really a work of kind of mutual myth-making between the island of Tana and the British. And, and the, uh, the, the Tanese worshippers of Philip have a really interesting cosmology where they see Britain and Tana as once having been connected islands that were broken apart by continental drift um, but there's this deep kind of connection. They see that each person has both a black and a white individual residing within them. And you have a kind of counterpart or a divine double who lives on the other side of the earth. And you can tap into their power in a supernatural way. And so here you have a people, you know, in a in a part of the world that is often written off as marginal or as not participating in the kind of bigger global order. And it, this is a really powerful, like, theological way of seeking connection, kind of building threads um, between Tana and the UK. And, you know, and to me, I'm, what I'm really interested in um, is how the divine right of kings continues to, to exist among us, so, you know, today. Like, it's, it's still in the background. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's in the background of class, for instance. I think it's still, it still kind of structures, you know, our hierarchies. Like, who do we see as being more than human? Who's less than human, you know? Um, I think it's, it still persists in a, in a really sinister way. And, and what I'm trying to do in the book is just, you know, pose the question of like, well, you know, the, the British press has really made a huge mockery of the Prince Philip religion, and it's, it's often branded a cargo cult, um, which is a pejorative term that was invented during World War II to kind of slander native resistance movements as being fanatical. Um, and so uh, it tends to be called a cargo cult, but, but actually like what I'm asking is like, is it really more irrational to believe that Prince Philip is a god than to believe that the British monarchy should still exist, you know? Um, and you know, like, to me, like it's it's truly like the British, the British Empire and the American Empire, who are really the biggest cargo cults of them all. You know, they they spread the doctrine of capitalism across the earth, um, 
and especially with the British monarchy, I mean, you still see it in, in the kind of like merchandise that, you know, the cargo that comes along with the, with the British monarchy at every occasion. Um, so I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to like, you know, have us like think more deeply about, about like what drives these movements, um, such as the Philip worshipers and, you know, they act, it's actually a really interesting, sophisticated body of thought behind them. Absolutely. And I think what I found so fascinating as well is the fact that, you know, we really span so much time in the book and really thinking about actually the history of gods or our perception of historical gods. And actually, sometimes after someone dies or they perhaps a bit like in the Prince Philip where he lives in such an other world it's easy to deify them because in a way sometimes after someone's gone we can you know sort of sometimes forget some of the you know wrongdoings that they convicted or what happened in their lives and, and I think that's also interesting how have God's changed over time so you use the very famous ver um, story of Haley Selassie um, who's, who's the head of Rastafarianism and actually you know this this guy wasn't necessarily a clean slate during his life yet there are cultures and religious religions all over the world who worship him who not necessarily know I mean I'm just using him as an example there are so many again like the British monarchy as well I mean can we use the Haley Selassie case as a particular example and 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 should we still worship people who have been convicted of crimes in their life Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think your question really like gets at the problem of evil <laughs> itself. Um, but to just to tell the story of Haile Selassie's apotheosis a little um, to situate us. Um, so in 1930, Haile Selassie crowned himself emperor of Ethiopia in this spectacular coronation ceremony in Addis Ababa. And he invited all of the powers of the earth to attend because he was deep in the struggle for succession with another princely nobleman. And he needed to create a kind of veneer of legitimacy on the international stage. And so, you know, journalists from across the world were there. Evelyn Wall was reporting on the coronation for the Times and described it as this totally unrehearsed mess and the crown was stashed in a cardboard box. Um, but the American Consul General was there covering it for National Geographic. And he wrote about the event in these kind of rapturous biblical tones. And there was one line in particular in the National Geographic story which seemed to suggest that King George V's own son, the Duke of Gloucester, had gotten down on bended knee before Haile Selassie and paid homage. Um, and so on the other side of the world in Jamaica, people heard the news of the coronation over the radio and then they saw the National Geographic article and several people had the same idea completely independently and spontaneously that God was alive on earth right now and he was a black man and this idea was incredibly powerful on an island that was still under British colonial rule where people were living amid terrible oppression and hardship and poverty um, and so this idea very quickly caught fire on the island. Um, but it was, you know, especially that line about the Duke of Gloucester bowing down. Um, but, you know, it, the, it was deeply paradoxical because on the one hand, 
Haile Selassie himself didn't consider himself black. He identified as Semitic. And he, you know, the religion would be called Rastafari, um, which is a reference to his earlier title, which is Ras, a title kind of like Duke, and Tafari, um, his birth name, Tafari Makonen. Um, but when he became emperor, he took on the baptismal name of Haile Selassie, and he would fine anybody who called him Rastafari. It was kind of seen as derogatory. But nevertheless, you know, um, as I write in, in the book, like, gods are able to withstand their own contradictions. This is like one mark of divinity. So the Rastafari religion grew to about a million followers today. But, you know, what you're asking is, like, so Haile Selassie, you know, we remember him as this, this terrible dictator. And you know, he's a figure who, in the 1970s, turned a blind eye to the terrible famine in Ethiopia. And that led to him being deposed in a coup. And, you know, how, how do his worshippers come to terms with this? You know, how, how do you worship a living God who's letting his own people starve to death? Um, and it, you know, it, it brings us right up to the problem of evil that <laughs> pervades all, all religious traditions in a way. You know, why does God permit suffering? Why does, why does the biblical God allow Job to suffer? You know, and, and it's very much unresolved. Um, Rastafari thinkers are also grappling with the legacy of slavery, you know, why, why did, why did Haile Selassie permit the kidnapping and enslaving of, of peoples from West Africa? And it's, you know, it's not solved, but it's, I think it's that kind of, this, this is what, like, sustains religion's thoughts, you know, these, these kind of problems that you can never quite get at, will never solve them. Yeah. I'd love to come to questions in a second because um, we haven't got much time left, but I'd also just love to bring it to the present day as well. And actually, you know, who are the gods of our present day? And also this idea of human, human gods and human flaws. I mean, where do we stand on that? And how much do we forgive? Because, I mean, you use the example of Trump, for example, in your book. Yeah, Trump, Trump is very much present in my book. And I, you know, I... I I think like more and more we're going to see the deification of autocrats and politicians, you know. I think um, the, the world around us is just becoming ever more apocalyptic, you know, especially in the face of climate change. Like it, it's becoming more biblical, whether it's, you know, fires, floods, plague, um, and we need, we really you know, we're up against such problems that we really need a messiah. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're just going to, you know, be looking for these figures more and more. Mm. It is so interesting, actually, that we need, like, a leader to cling on to, sort of no matter what they do in the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, particularly today, right-wing movements have kind of seized upon this nexus between divinity and power in a way that, that's, you know much more like instrumentalizing and driving than left-wing movements, you know. Um, I think kind of, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest in my book is that 
we can create new gods all the time. We're the ones who are writing these myths. And the sacred is this kind of space that's forever open. It's, it's up for grabs to any political project. And it's a profoundly you know, driving force for causes of liberation and causes of oppression. Um, and so I think, you know, the left would do well to kind of try and seize upon it, too, you know. Mm, but also just the idea of gods almost being a very sort of hierarchical capitalist structure as well, with this one person being at the top. I mean, in a way, we almost have to sort of reframe what we mean by gods and making sure that, you know, someone is not actually more powerful than others in so many different ways. Yes, exactly. I mean, going back to Haile Selassie, it's really interesting how, you know, this worship of an autocrat actually became a profoundly democratizing force in Jamaica because you have Jamaican politicians such as Michael Manley who then seize upon Rastafari ideas to steer the country in the direction of democratic socialism. And so, you know, the, these figures like can kind of lead us towards democracy in a way that is, you know, deeply unexpected. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.